As early as the second scene of The Tempest, we are made aware that all we are seeing is insubstantial, a mere pageant faded. What follows is a story of bitterness and forgiveness, of the freedom found in service and the submission that comes with authority. A story set to strange music, one that provides a luminous, spiritual reflection on the artistic process. The play is, as G. Wilson Knight said, at the same time the most perfect work of art and the most crystal act of mystic vision in our literature. Hello and welcome to Ear Read This, Edinburgh's most powerful book podcast. I'm Ash, your host, and today I'm talking about one of my favourite plays, The Tempest, by William Shakespeare. Thought to be the last play that Shakespeare was the sole author of, the first recorded performance of The Tempest was before the court of King James at Whitehall on the 1st of November 1611, the night of Hallowmass, or All Saints Day. Along with Love's Labour's Lost and A Midsummer Night's Dream, it is one of the only plays by Shakespeare not to have an identifiable primary source. Rightly or wrongly, this has long given some critics the impression that The Tempest is an unusually personal play. That Shakespeare, through an allegorical tale of a magician retiring his art, is offering his own farewell to the stage. Peter Ackroyd, commenting on the similarities between these three plays, has written, All of them are highly patterned in a manner that seems intrinsic to the English imagination. They are all carefully and symmetrically structured, all touched by mystery or enchantment. Two of them have elements of the supernatural, and all include dramatic entertainments within their overall structure, as if in parody of the somewhat artificial plots. Indeed, by the time The Tempest begins, the plot is virtually finished. Harold Bloom wrote, Try to write a plot summary of The Tempest, and you will begin to grimace almost immediately. Well, it is the story of the magician Prospero, former Duke of Milan, who for 12 years has been living in exile. Exile is, of course, another of Shakespeare's favourite themes, but The Tempest, as Leah Scragg points out, is unique in Shakespearean drama in that it is set exclusively in the exiled state. In this case, a mysterious island, full of noises, sounds and sweet airs. There, Prospero lives with his daughter, Miranda, and two servants, the shape-shifting Ariel and Caliban, a native of the island, not honoured with a human shape, but monstrous. W.H. Auden, author of a mesmerising response to the play, The Sea and the Mirror, conceived of Caliban and Ariel as fractured beings. As the personification of nature, writes Auden, Caliban has the power of individuation but no power of conception, whereas Ariel, as the personification of spirit, has the power of conception but not of individuation. As the play opens, we see a ship caught in a ferocious storm, its crew declaring all is lost. However, in the following scene, it is revealed that this tempest is in fact the creation of the magician Prospero, no lives have been lost, and the mariners have been washed up safe and sound upon the island. Included among them are the King of Naples, as well as Prospero's treacherous brother Antonio and the King's son Ferdinand. Prospero's plan is to leave the island, his magic along with it, and return to Milan. Along the way, he intends to punish his brother and marry his daughter to the King's son. 
Meanwhile, his two servants, Caliban and Ariel, take very different courses towards gaining their freedom. Ariel by loyally performing one final act of service, Caliban by convincing some of the shipwrecked sailors into killing his master. While there is no primary source for The Tempest, it bears the mark of numerous influences. Beaumont and Fletcher's play Philaster also concerns Neapolitan royals and fathers conniving useful marriages. With John Marston's The Malcontent, The Tempest shares the subject of lost dukedoms and a theatrical self-awareness as well. Then there's Ben Jonson, who not only wrote a play as steeped as The Tempest is in Sorcery, The Alchemist, but since the early 1600s had been producing masks. Lavish, celebratory stage entertainments featuring music, dancing and elaborate scenery. Shakespeare stages a mask within The Tempest. As we shall see, this is a play which draws attention to its own dramatic workings. Beyond Shakespeare's immediate contemporaries, other influences on The Tempest include the work of essayist Michel Montaigne and the enduring memory of Shakespeare's greatest rival, Christopher Marlowe. Harold Bloom has said that The Tempest is Shakespeare's belated answer to Marlowe's Dr Faustus, and Prospero is the anti-Faust, even though his name slyly matches the Italian version of the Latin Faustus, the favoured one. And Shakespeare's incorporation of sections of William Caxton's translation of the Metamorphoses has led Jonathan Bate to call The Tempest a kind of collaboration with Ovid. Then there is the real-life, ill-fated voyage of the sea venture, which en route to the colonies in Virginia in 1609 was wrecked on the Bermuda Reefs. An account of the shipwreck by survivor William Strachey was published in 1625, but his manuscript had been circulating between interested readers since 1610. Textual similarities between Strachey's text and The Tempest indicate that Shakespeare may have been among them. Prospero tells us that Ariel could run upon the sharp wind of the north, a line that resembles Strachey's sharp winds blowing northerly. But whether or not we read The Tempest as Shakespeare's self-aware swan song, we cannot miss that it is greatly concerned with performance and with writing, that imaginative leap between feeling a sharp wind and running upon one. Or, as Henry James put it, the conjunction for the poet between his charged inspiration and his clarified experience, his human curiosity and his aesthetic passion. Joining me today to discuss The Tempest is Reverend Dr Paul Edmondson. Paul is head of research for the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust, a prolific author and a Church of England priest. He has written and edited many books on Shakespeare, some of which we will talk about on tomorrow's extended interview. There's more information in the meantime about Paul's work in the episode description box below. And while your attention is on that indescribably lovely episode description box, I should add that if you would like to support the podcast, you can do so by leaving me a review on your chosen podcast platform, subscribing if you're watching on YouTube, or even donating a coffee using the coffee link. Now, despite being one of Shakespeare's last plays, The Tempest is the first to appear in the first folio. When Charlton Hinman, inventor of the Hinman Collator, studied the first folio, he concluded that three different compositors had a hand in printing The Tempest. Before reaching the Barbican print shop of the blind publisher William Jaggard, the script was handwritten by the man often called Shakespeare's first editor, Ralph Crane. You may think that this is rather a lot of hands to be involved in looking after a Shakespeare manuscript, but The Tempest is considered one of the cleanest and error-free plays in the folio. 
I asked Paul Edmondson why Shakespeare's editors, Hemings and Condal, might have taken special care with The Tempest. Well, I think they had intimate knowledge of The Tempest that we lack, didn't they? And I think one of the most appealing things about Hemings and Condal, when we think of them primarily perhaps as editors of the first folio, whatever that means, and I think they had a, a larger team behind them helping them because it's it's so daunting a, a labour to have produced the first folio. One of the most interesting things about them as people is the amount of time they spent with Shakespeare and, and, and acted with him and worked with the actors who were working with them. And I think that they knew The Tempest to be particularly important to Shakespeare and that therefore they put it first in the first folio, the first among the comedies mm. in the first folio. We think of it, don't we, and this is only the, one of the things they might have thought of, as Shakespeare's final single authored work. It seems that after The Tempest, he collaborates with John Fletcher, with Henry VIII, All is True, The Two Noble Kinsmen and The Lost Play Cardinio. So it had a special place in his work. And it's often dismissed as sentimental that it's a sort of farewell to the theatre. But I don't think that's sentimental. I think that's probably just simply true. And that Hemings and Condell appreciated that as much as culturally we have come to appreciate that, though we perhaps think about it as something derogatory now to say about, about the play, or let's say, if not derogatory, a commonplace. I think it might have been seen as the culmination, therefore, of his career, a sort of retirement play almost, or a final, if not farewell to the stage, uh, the play in which, he, the last play with, in which he himself sort of had full uh, authorial control. And therefore I have no problem at all, Ash, in thinking about Shakespeare as Prospero <laughs> and Prospero as Shakespeare. Really, I don't. I think it's, I think it's a marvellous connection. And I think it opens up the magic of the play uh, and it is a magical play. It's certainly a magical play before it's a colonial one. Mm. And I think it opens up really interestingly Shakespeare's artistic project that we see stretching across the career, the way he writes about the theatrical art itself in The Tempest, the way it has spiritual dimensions and how that connects it with other of his plays. So I think there was great excitement about The Tempest. And, you know, we know that it was performed on the 1st of November, 1611, for the King at Whitehall. And then it was a wedding play the, the, the year later, the winter later for Princess Elizabeth and the Elector Palatine. But I think artistically, Hemings and Condal and indeed Shakespeare were excited about The Tempest and they might have even have discussed it might be Shakespeare's choosing to have it first among the folio plays. Mm. You know, if we, if we plausibly speculate that Shakespeare more or less commissioned Hemings and Condell and Richard Burbage, who died in 1619, to produce a folio, and Stanley Wells thinks very clearly about this when he, 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 he suggests that Shakespeare's leaving them money to buy mourning rings in his will was, was a sort of contract that they would they would finish the job that they'd started, then then it might be Shakespeare's own choosing that The Tempest become, is, is first among the plays. 
I personally think Shakespeare himself started work on the folio in New Place and that Hemings and Condell inherited a job that he'd already started. If that uh, if that's so, would that perhaps explain why The Tempest not only appears first but seems to have a bit more care and attention paid to the 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 editing seems a bit cleaner than some of the later later plays in the folio perhaps if perhaps if they were working chronologically through the through the folio and shakespeare was on deck as it were <laughs> yeah it's it's difficult isn't it to to generalize about the the state of the manuscripts behind the plays in the first folio but yes the 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 ralph crane scribal plays i think it's among them isn't it so therefore it seems tidier to us Samuel Taylor Coleridge, expressing his admiration for The Tempest, wrote of the first scene, A storm and its confusion on board the king's ship. The highest and the lowest characters are brought together, and with what excellence. For a play beginning with such confusion, interpretations of The Tempest have been appropriately wind-blown and far-flung. As Virginia Mason Vaughan puts it, since its first performances in the early 17th century, critical responses to The Tempest have run the gamut from revisionism in the Restoration to unquestioning adulation in the 18th and 19th centuries, to interrogation and deconstruction in the late 20th. Adding to the disordered reception is the fact that for almost a century, the most performed version of The Tempest was a rewrite. In 1667, John Dryden and William Davenant began work on an update of The Tempest that would remain the standard stage version deep into the 18th century. Characteristically gung-ho in adaptation as he was in translation, Dryden, along with Davenant, rumoured to be Shakespeare's illegitimate son, emphasised the comic elements of the original play, while downplaying the risque usurpation theme and complexities of its language. With only about a third of Shakespeare's text, the plot is convoluted with the addition of a second young romantic coupling and a twin sister for Caliban. Immortal lines like, we are such stuff as dreams are made on and our little life is rounded with a sleep, are dropped in favour of swoony fluff, such as, when I touch your hand which makes me sigh just so, I've seen two turtles mourning when they met, yet mine's a pleasing grief, and so methought was theirs. Samuel Pepys recalled seeing this play on November the 7th, 1667, writing in his diary, Went to see The Tempest, an old play of Shakespeare's, the most innocent play that I ever saw. The play has no great wit, but yet good, above ordinary plays. Dryden and Davenant's version, subtitled The Enchanted Island, was itself adapted into an opera in 1674 by Thomas Shadwell, and parodied the following year in Thomas Duffet's Mock Tempest, or The Enchanted Castle. In the latter half of the 17th century, The Tempest had particular appeal amongst audiences settling into the Restoration, the story of an exiled Prospero returning to his dukedom, happily mirroring the fortunes of England's own king. While Dryden and Davenant made the most of the comic potential of The Tempest, critics, including E.M.W. Tilliard, have discerned in the play a tragic pattern. The Tempest was grouped along with the comedies in the first folio, but following the work of Edward Dowden has been reclassified in the more porous genre of romance. According to Northrop Fry, in its genre, The Tempest shows a marked affinity with dramatic forms outside the normal range of tragedy and comedy. Among these is The Mask. Besides containing an actual mask, The Tempest is like The Mask in its use of elaborate stage machinery and music. 
The magician, with his wand and mantle, was a frequent figure in masks, and Caliban is like the wild men common in the farcical interludes known as anti-masks. In his extraordinary reading of the play, Scott Maizano has claimed The Tempest as among the earliest works of scientific romance, pipping authors like Mary Shelley to the post by two centuries. Shakespeare, in Maizano's reading, profited from the unique dynamism of his times, an age of new philosophy and such scientific breakthroughs as Galileo's, discoveries of moons orbiting Jupiter, and yet at the same time an age that was holding fast to supernatural beliefs, ideas of white and black magic, the former used in the name of good by magicians like Prospero, the latter for sinister purposes by the likes of Caliban's mother, the witch Sycorax. This convergence between science and magic in Shakespeare's day was embodied in the person sometimes called the Queen's Conjurer, John Dee, a mathematician and astronomer who also studied alchemy and experimented with contacting the dead. Incidentally, Dee claimed to have a spirit angel called Uriel. Prospero reveals that by using rather off-white magic, he has been able to raise the dead. Graves at my command, he says, have waked their sleepers, oped and let them forth by my so potent art. Maizano extrapolates from this a further grim revelation. Noticing that Miranda cannot recall, in that dark, backward and abysm of time, the circumstances surrounding her arrival on the island, Maizano speculates that Miranda in fact died during the rough sea voyage in that rotten carcass of a boat. Perhaps the reason Prospero has many times begun to tell Miranda of her life, writes Maizano, and just as many time broken off the story, is that his own daughter is the creature he brought back from the grave. Miranda is the first Frankenstein monster. Beyond the confusion of what genre the play is, there is a further question of who the play belongs to. Harold Bloom couldn't fathom why the play was called The Tempest and not Prospero and said that The Tempest is Prospero's play, and not Ariel's, as the Romantics believed, nor Caliban's, as the post-colonialists believed. Those later critics placed Caliban, whom Prospero calls a bored slave, at the play's moral centre, his hardships at the hands of the white magician analogous with those of indigenous New World people subjugated by European imperialists. Jonathan Bate argues that such readings were the product of the liberal intelligentsia of the American 1970s, coming to the full realisation of the exploitation and oppression on which their nation was built. The task of literary theory became to assuage the guilt of empire by making the author of The Tempest a scapegoat. While the precise location of the island is kept vague, logic would suggest these Neapolitan seafarers are still in the Mediterranean. However, as Leslie Fielder has written, there seems little doubt that America was on Shakespeare's mind, particularly at the point in Act 2 when he puts into the mouth of that kindly but ineffectual old windbag Gonzalo the speech beginning, Had I the plantation of this isle, my lord, and ending, I would with such perfection govern, sir, to excel the golden age. The Tempest commences with elemental disarray, and to some degree, that's how the elements remain. A sense of unreality resonates throughout the island. As Fielder says, the word strange appears everywhere in the Tempest, not only in the speeches of the shipwrecked Neapolitans, but in the stage directions as well. Strange drowsiness, strange beast, strange music, strange shapes, strange stare, strange story, all climaxing in Alonso's description of Caliban. This is as strange a thing as e'er I looked on. The apparently doomed boatswain in the play's opening begins a running theme by mocking the idea of commanding these elements to silence. 
But only a scene later, Miranda is imploring her father to do just that. If by your art, my dearest father, you have put the wild waters in this roar, allay them. The sky, it seems, would pour down stinking pitch, but that the sea, mounting to the welkin's cheek, dashes the fire out. And Ferdinand, having fallen for Miranda, tells Prospero how she has dashed out his own inner fire. The white cold virgin snow upon my heart abates the ardour of my liver. For Ariel, moving between the elements is nothing. He can tread the ooze of the salt deep or run upon the sharp wind of the north. Even do Prospero's business in the veins of the earth when it is baked with frost. As a minister of fate, he can laugh away the weapons of Alonso and Sebastian, saying the elements of whom your swords are tempered may as well wound the loud winds or with bemocked-at stabs kill the still-closing waters. But he does all this only in the service of Prospero, until the magician finally bids him, to the elements be free and fare thou well. It is not only magical characters that can inspire elemental transformation. As Antonio sets in motion a murder plot, his conspirator Sebastian tells him, well, I am standing water. To which Antonio replies, I'll teach you how to flow. Fanny Kemble wrote that of the wonderful chain of being of which Caliban is the densest and Ariel the most ethereal extreme, Prospero is the middle link. He, the wise and good man, is the ruling power, to whom the whole series is subject. You mentioned that it has this dimension of artistic self, self-criticism. self Is that something that um, differs it from the plays it shares familiar elements with, like the earlier comedies, Shipwrecks, Disunited Families... I'm thinking of Comedy of Errors and uh, Midsummer Night's Dream, some of the plays it, it sort of superficially resembles. I suppose it's most like A Midsummer Night's Dream in the sense of its interest in the supernatural. But then if we, uh, if we, I mean, <laughs> apart from <laughs> A Midsummer Night's Dream, Midsummer Night's Dream couldn't be further away from the sea. <laughs> um, so, so, so if we think for a moment about the other, as it were, plays that involve shipwreck and, and misplaced families, disunited families, got The Comedy of Errors, an early play, got Pericles, a late play, The Winter's Tale, a late play, Twelfth Night or What You Will, a middle play. I suppose it has most in common with with The Winter's Tale and Pericles. With The Winter's Tale, it shares a theme of forgiveness, I think, which comes in right at the end of The Winter's Tale, though though not if you read Leontes's guilt-ridden 16 years, as it were, longing to be forgiven. The Tempest is all about forgiveness, it seems to me. It's about Prospero gathering people together in order to forgive them. Mm. And this has been a, 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 a project for him for 12 years. And it has affiliation and affinity with Pericles because of the divine interventions in the plays. Diana and Jupiter in Pericles. And then we have the series Iris and Juno appearing on stage as, as part of the, the wedding mask for Ferdinand and Miranda, but also Prosper himself as a kind of divine uh, intervener into the lives and stories of, of the characters themselves. It's distinctive, isn't it, though, because of taking place in almost real time. Yes. Which sets it apart from all the other plays. I mean, we can talk about the comedy of errors in terms of it's more or less single location. I'm just thinking about the classical unities for a moment of time, place, and action. But the the tempest, as it were, on 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 the single island, apart from the shipwreck at the very beginning, 
and then almost within real time that we feel that kind of working out that that we age with the story mm. as it as it unfolds before us that makes it distinctive with midsummer night's dream of course it it shares the place with love's labor's lost as as not having a, a single identifiable source and and therefore we might suggest that those three plays are as it were among the closest to Shakespeare's own sense of the stories that he wanted to tell, to invent, to imagine, to body forth. But obviously he's drawing from sources for all of them, but but they somehow seem closer perhaps to something more personal as far as Shakespeare's concerned. All three have a, in different ways, a sort of meta-theatrical preoccupation with, you know, plays within plays, uh, mask in the case of The Tempest. In fact, also, also a, a you know, a bit of theatre at the end for Love's Labour's Lost. Of course, Midsummer Night's Dream and Love's Labour's Lost have the play within the play, don't they? Pyramus and Thisbe in The Pageant of the Nine Worthies. The Tempest has got the, the mask, of course. Uh, I, I'm fascinated too how they're, they're all partly about the writing of poetry and the power of the imagination. So, you know, we have the lords in Love's Labour's Lost writing sonnets in praise of the the ladies in Love's Labour's Lost of the of the Princess of France's court, uh, and then you have Theseus's great speech about the imagination and the power of the poet's pen in a fine frenzy rolling, glancing from heaven to earth, from earth to heaven, giving to airy nothing a local habitation and a name, and then you have Prospero's you know really remarkable, these are actors as I foretold you were spirits. And are melted into air, and it's like the 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 dissolution of the of the mask, because of Prospero realizing that danger is at hand, takes us, doesn't it, back to the airy nothing, a local habitation, and a name that which was bodied forth mm. can quickly evaporate. Even as he goes on to say, like the great globe itself and all which it inherit, leave not a rack behind and then we're back to the shipwreck at the beginning of the play and then the prayer with which the tempest ends too as an epilogue poem also is a reminder of this this quality of the of the self-reflection on poetry itself as well as theatre in the tempest as paul mentioned earlier we audience members age with the play we are on the island's time the English word tempest, as Geoffrey A. Rufo writes, derives from the Latin tempestus, meaning not only a storm marked by great wind and rain, but also a time, a period, or occasion. Working down from the idea of Prospero as playwright, critics have seen the world of the tempest as a symbolic theatre, Caliban a disgruntled actor, defying direction. Douglas Brewster compared him to one of Shakespeare's former clowns, William Kemp, challenging the script and generally making a nuisance of himself. Ariel, by contrast, light-footed, obedient, slightly androgynous, resembles to some an enthusiastic boy actor. Others see Ariel as symbolising not a living and breathing acolyte of the writer, but the word, possessing the ability to transform or inhabit any element, just as language can. G. Wilson Knight wrote that Ariel is the poetic medium, whatever the subject handled, his powers ranging over the earthy and the ethereal, tragic and lyric, with equal ease. As the playwright keeps order on the stage, it is the Ministry of Prospero that keeps order on the island, dividing the shipwrecked characters, submitting them to the ordeals and visions necessary for them to achieve redemption and even forgiveness. As Martin Butler says, without Prospero's surveillance, the world would become a jungle. 
So Shakespeare, praised by his first critics as a poet of nature, here shows us a man at war with nature, holding it at bay with his waning powers of artifice. Lytton Strachey writes, to turn from Theseus and Titania and Bottom to the enchanted island is to step out of a country lane into a conservatory. Here, says Strachey, unreality has reached its apotheosis. Two of the principal characters are frankly not human beings at all, and the whole action passes through a series of impossible occurrences in a place which can only by courtesy be said to exist. The enchanted island, peopled for a timeless moment, has been cut adrift forever from common sense and floats buoyed up by the sea, not of waters, but of poetry. As we shall see, Prospero's authority is precarious, his enchantment not infallible. He is still dependent on his subjects and everything going to plan, just as Shakespeare's words are not enough to guarantee a faultless performance. On both the island and on stage, things can go wrong. But what kind of authority are we really talking about here? That of a poet or a magician? Or is it neither? As Robert Orgel says, Prospero's devotion to his secret studies is what caused all the trouble in the first place. If he has now learned to be a good ruler through the exercise of his art, that is also what taught him to be a bad one. So the question of his need for magic goes to the heart of how we interpret and judge his character. Is the magic a strength or a weakness? Whichever it is, it must be retired in order for Prospero to return to Milan, his former dukedom, suggesting that Prospero now sees more value in governance than magical mastery. Geoffrey A. Rufo writes, Shakespeare's career seems in a broad sense to have taken him away from admiration for republican ideas and towards an acceptance of absolutist ones. His inclusion of a mask in the Tempest, traditionally performed for the glorification of a monarch, is then not only a useful bit of inbuilt flattery for those court performances, but also a way of commemorating Prospero's decision. As Rufo says, with its movement from conflict to harmony, the mask was as much the king's form as the poet's. It was a celebration of his authority, an assertion of his private will, and a theatrical realisation of his sense of place in the universe. With, with regard to the, to the mask and, and, and uh, thunder and lightning and, and, and so on, it is... The magical table, the magical, magical banquet. Magical table, yeah. And the, mag and the magical shapes, Anne. Yes. And, <laughs> I think, and, 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 and Ariel, and, and, and do we see Ariel fly? And, and I think, going back to Hemings and Condal, and indeed Shakespeare himself, I... One senses that they were they were pushing theatre's technical abilities further than than they'd ever done with the Tempest. So maybe they were especially proud of it for that reason. It's the, with all the special effects. Exactly. Well, I mean, <laughs> uh, they're so nonchalant. The stage directions, aren't they? Um, Ariel turns into a harpy. Sort that one out, director. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. As I've said in past episodes, in Shakespeare's glow, performances would have had minimal scenery. However, towards the end of his career, Shakespeare's company acquired an indoor theatre in Blackfriars, which enabled them to implement a few special effects. The thunder of the Tempest was likely brought to life by means of rolling a cannonball across the roof behind the stage. There were hoists for the flying characters, like Ariel perhaps, and of course there was the spectacle of the mask. But these were still rudimentary and minimal compared to the stage effects of later centuries, as theatre makers made an effort to represent realistically their play's setting. Edward Cappell, writing in 1780, said that no well-advised poet will think at this time of day of bringing into his piece an action like that of the first scene of The Tempest. As under every advantage that stages now derive from their scenery, or ever can derive were mechanism even pushed to the utmost, 
Such action will want the power of imposing in that degree that we ourselves have made necessary. But this touched not Shakespeare. His imposing was not by eyes, but by ears. The former his stage denied him, and therefore left him at liberty to fix upon any action that liked him and that suited his plot. That, of course, didn't stop people from trying to mount productions of The Tempest, as a despairing review from July 1857 attests, bemoaning the long, dull pauses that audiences had to endure as sets were changed. I wanted to ask you about uh, readings of Prospero. I, I, I was reading somewhere that his early critics, um, Prospero's early critics, saw him as quite a benign, fatherly figure, maybe a curmudgeon, but a, a fairly benign figure. I was wondering if you knew why or, or, uh, uh, or, or how some later critics have uh, come to see him, see him more as more um, sinister. Well, I, you know, I think it's not a case of either or, is it? I think the, what do we mean by sinister? I mean, I think that when we talk about later critics, we probably think of readings that see Prospero as a colonial bully, a colonizer, you know, post-colonial readings of this remarkable play. And I've nothing against those, and they are interesting, but they do rather rob the play of its magic. And I think I need the magic if I'm going to love The Tempest. I, I don't want especially to only see performed in front of me um, a, a post-colonial reading. I want the magic garment. I want the magical staff. I want the magical book. And I'm even happier if Prospero's robe has stars stuck on it. You know, I think I think that he is the magus. He is the magician. I want to see him in a in a in a in a musty room surrounded by books that I want to read because they look intriguing. He's a Renaissance scholar. He's a Doctor Faustus. Mm. He's dangerous in that sense, in the knowledge that he's handling and the magic of which he is capable. But he's also a very loving father. And this we need to see portrayed too. I'm thinking of the speech, one of his first, his, his first, one of his first speeches, Act 1, Scene 2. We first hear him say to Miranda, who's obviously extremely distressed from having seen the shipwreck, be collected, no more amazement. Tell your piteous heart, there's no harm done. Oh, woe the day, no harm. I have done nothing but in care of thee, of thee, my dear one, my daughter, who art ignorant of what thou art, not knowing of whence I am, nor that I am more better than Prospero, master of a full poor cell, and thy no greater father. And then the story comes out that he's really the usurped Duke of Milan. Mm. But she knows him to be Prospero, master, and she knows him to be magical but he is a really caring father. And everything he does in this play is because of Miranda, mm. as, well as, well, as well as for himself, because he, he wants his dukedom back. But he wants her properly to have her identity as Duke's daughter and his daughter. When we think of him as sinister, surely we, we must think of the speech in Act 5, scene one in which he talks of raising people from the dead this is this is the, the the dangerous magic the rough magic which you know we i always long to see in a production and read about mm. in critical approaches 
ye elves of hills, brooks, standing lakes and groves, and ye that on the sands with printless foot do chase the ebbing Neptune, and do fly him when he comes back, you demi-puppets that by moonshine do the green sour ringlets make, whereof the you not bites, and you whose pastime is to make midnight mushrooms, that rejoice to hear the solemn curfew, by whose aid weak masters though ye be, I have bedimmed the noontide sun, called forth the mutinous winds, and twixt the green sea and the azured vault set roaring war to the dread rattling thunder I have given fire, and rifted Jove's stout oak with his own bolt, the strong-based promontory have I made shake, and by the spurs plucked up the pine and cedar. Graves at my command have waked their sleepers, oped and let em forth by my so potent art. But this rough magic I here abjure, and when I have required some heavenly music, which even now I do, to work mine end upon their senses that this airy charm is for. I'll break my staff, bury it certain fathoms in the earth, and deeper than did ever plummet sound, I'll drown my book. This is a man who's capable of regenerating life, as well as submerging magic forever. That's how dangerous he is. This is more than only an objectionable colonizing figure. Yes. This, th th there is a, there is a multi-dimensional side to Prospero, which, which requires the actor, the production, and indeed the reader to strike midnight all at once. Mm. And I rather like that. I rather, I rather go for that challenge. So if we're thinking about who Prospero is and where Shakespeare is, in Prospero. Well, I think he's, I think he's writ all over Prospero. You know, I, 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 I think Shakespeare saw himself as a sort of magus, writing the plays he did and the ability he had. I mean, I think he, like many artists, he must have, he must have thought, where is this power coming from? How can I have produced such a play or written such lines? Did, did I really write those speeches that I, I, I'm looking at now? I mean, I remember writing them, but, you know, they're much, much better than I remember. <laughs> and, and, and I think to be pleased with one's own art is, is something which really great artists do feel when they look back on their achievements. And I think there's something of that in, in, in The Tempest and Prospero. Following that, following that line of thought then, you know, bringing, bringing people back to the dead uh, bringing back from the dead could we see that as shakespeare having brought back figures from history and and allowed them to speak again absolutely but you know bodying forth the the, the the dead in the history plays as you say but bodying forth the dead within the stories of many other plays you know he body for he bodies forth the dead as it were when hero comes back to life apparently in much do about nothing mm. or when sebastian and viola see each other as rescued from the shipwreck, they they see themselves as resurrected beings. Do I stand there? I never had a brother, says Sebastian, nor have I that deity in my nature of here and everywhere. And and so that's a resurrection story. Hermione coming to life in The Winter's Tale, Claudio coming back to life. 
in Measure for Measure, whom Isabella and others have supposed dead. So this is a trope that Shakespeare himself is profoundly interested in across his whole career, the one of resurrection. And here's Prospero saying, well, this is what I do. Yeah. This is part of my magic. Um, so, and, and of course, Pericles' resurrection narrative, Thaisa, uh, as it were, being even back to her husband. Being able to wield power over life and death makes Prospero a kind of island god, presiding over, with varying levels of benevolence, his three subjects. In Robert Browning's 1864 poem, he imagines Caliban considering his two gods, the deity his mother worshipped, Setebos, on one side, and Prospero on the other. The clash of both understandably confounds him, just as it causes him to suffer in the play itself. I must obey. His art is of such power it would control my dam's god, Setebos, and make a vassal of him. Prospero's attempted education of Caliban, as Browning puts it, letting the rank tongue blossom into speech, has only led to misery and service for the native. You taught me language, says Caliban, and my prophet aunt is, I know how to curse. The situation of this tormented creature is quite hopeless. As George Lamming writes, the difference between Caliban and the sinner is this. A sinner remains a child of God, and redemption is not so much an order as a natural duty. Grace is the sinner's birthright. But Caliban is not a child of anything except nature. To be a child of nature in this sense is to be situated in nature, to be identified with nature, to be eternally without the seed of a dialectic which makes possible some emergence from nature. Caliban is famously described in intriguingly different ways. A tortoise, a half-fish, half-monster, a thing of darkness, a moon-calf. While Browning imagines him as a sea-beast, lumpish, which Prospero snared, blinded the eyes of, and split its toe-webs. Look up historic productions of The Tempest and you'll see a fantastic range of physical interpretations. Costumes that look like a hybrid from the island of Dr. Moreau or the creature from the Black Lagoon. Other productions highlight the dichotomy of Ariel and Caliban, like contrary aspects of Prospero, as G. Wilson Knight says, like Plato's two steeds of the soul, the noble and the hideous, twin potentialities of the human spirit. Then there are productions that visualise Caliban as a human slave, casting Prospero's cruel treatment in an even starker light. Caliban is referred to as a slave in a line which the folio originally gives to Miranda, not Prospero. But Leslie Fielder points out that the word slave is ambiguous in Shakespeare, meaning sometimes, as in the case of Iago, one so vile that only total subjugation seems an appropriate fate, and sometimes one actually thus subjugated, like Othello, whether he deserves it or not. While there are scant references to the Americas, such as Bermudes, signifying Bermuda, Brinda Cherry writes there is no evidence that Shakespeare's audience ever saw the play as about the New World. In fact, one cannot even accurately describe England as a colonial power in the early 17th century. It is important to remember that Prospero is not on the island by choice or imperial desire. He was shipwrecked. Certainly, he treats Caliban viciously, threatening him that he will, tonight, have cramps, side-stitches that shall pen thy breath up. Urchins shall, for that vast of night that they may work, all exercise on thee. Thou shalt be pinched as thick as honeycomb, each pinch more stinging than bees that made them. But this is in response to Caliban's attempted rape of Miranda, 
before which Prospero had shown him kindness, as Caliban describes. Thou strokedst me and madest much of me, wouldst give me water with berries in it, and teach me how to name the bigger light and how the less. This is a kindness which still doesn't treat Caliban as an equal, but a pupil. A pupil, furthermore, possibly kept docile by that water in berries in it, presumably alcohol. Harold Bloom writes, It is Prospero's play, but Caliban's island. And Prospero has only survived thanks to Caliban's knowledge of the qualities of the isle, the fresh springs, brine pits, barren place and fertile. Therefore, to murder Caliban, as George Lamming points out, would be an act of pure suicide. In this delicate, potentially violent relationship, Shakespeare may have had in mind a passage of Montaigne's essay of Cannibals, in which Montaigne describes the prophet that declaims to the tribe in public, exhorting them to virtue and their duty. If he fail in his divination and anything happens otherwise than he has foretold, he is cut into a thousand pieces. The moment Prospero's threats fail to frighten Caliban, or the moment Caliban manages to separate Prospero from his books, then he will batter his skull with a log and use Miranda to people the island with Caliban's. Because Prospero doesn't only fear physical violence, but the foiling of his plan to get off the island through the successful marrying off of Miranda, which is his design from the beginning of the play. Martin Butler says that if for Prospero his daughter's progeny is the hope that redeems his power, the corollary is that Caliban must not be allowed to breed at all. Shakespeare is careful to show the ways in which Miranda and Caliban are equal. Prospero's patriarchal influence over Caliban gives the pair a kind of sibling relationship. They interact, unlike Ariel, who Miranda doesn't see. And when Prospero chides Miranda for being attracted to Ferdinand, he says, Thou thinkst there is no more such shapes as he, having seen but him and Caliban. Foolish wench. To the most of men this is a Caliban, and they to him are angels. Not only does this place Caliban amongst men, but also reminds us that just as Miranda has seen no other men, Caliban has seen no other women. So when he calls Miranda's beauty incomparable, we are aware that Caliban too is speaking without having any point of comparison. Caliban also lacks crucial information surrounding his early life, just as Miranda does. Stephen Orgel asks, is it true that Caliban is Sycorax's bastard by Satan? How does Prospero know this? Not from Sycorax, Prospero never saw her. Not from Caliban, Sycorax died before she could even teach her son to speak. Everything Prospero knows about the witch, he knows from Ariel. Her appearance, the story of her banishment, the fact that her pregnancy saved her from execution. Superficially, Ariel, Caliban, Prospero and Miranda all resemble figures from Commedia dell'arte, the archetypal prosperous magician trying to find a suitor for his virginal daughter attended on by two lackeys and a hunchback. But as many critics point out, in his sufferings and in his loneliness, Caliban's nobility is unmistakable, and far from comic. As Coleridge said, Shakespeare raised him far above contempt. Caliban's heritage may be a knockabout comedy, but he feels pain and he remembers it. Lytton Strachey writes that Bottom was the first of Shakespeare's masterpieces in characterization. Caliban was the last, and what a world of bitterness and horror lies between them. Caliban defies the usual class system of Shakespeare's plays, though in status he is lowly. As August Wilhelm Schlegel said, Caliban is maliciously cowardly, false and base, and yet he is essentially different from the vulgar knaves of the civilised world. He is rude but not vulgar. 
He never falls into the prosaic and low familiarity of his drunken associates, for he is, in his way, a poetical being. Caliban, if, if we will, himself is a great poet, isn't he? If we imagine him being author of his speeches. Be not afeard, the isle is full of noises, sounds and strange airs that give delight but hurt not. And then he's crying to dream again. You know, this, this great soul in Caliban contradicts and challenges whatever I've just been saying about Prospero, at least a little, or rather more than a little. And, and Ariel's you know, will to freedom and remembering that Ariel had been imprisoned in the, in the cloven pine, brought out and apparently made free, but basically made slave to, to Prospero. They are Prospero's slaves. And the play, in as much as it being about forgiveness, is also about freedom, isn't it? And Ariel being set free at the end. My goodness, how does one begin to read that? Do, do we read that as, as some, well, one, I suppose one could read it symbolically as, as an artistic revelation in the life of an artist, that suddenly the work is released, the, the electricity or whatever metaphor one uses, the power of the work is finally realised. It might, that might, be, might be that kind of symbol. And, and Caliban, this, you know, who Prospero is extremely aggressive towards and you know, has taken his island. This is where the, the, the uh, post-colonial readings become, you know, so compelling. It's himself a great spirit and a great soul. And we suppose is, well, we hope is, is properly free at the end. And I suppose he is because Prospero leaves. If, if we choose to set him free when we applaud at the end. So, so Shakespeare's involving the life of the audience in this play in a, in a, in a, in a fascinating, fascinating way which again connects it to Midsummer Night's Dream, give me your hands if we be friends, and Robin shall restore amends. As you from crimes would pardoned be, let your indulgence set me free. I always want to be the first one in the audience to start clapping <laughs> at the end of any performance of A Midsummer Night's Dream or The Tempest Ash. Mm. I always try to be the first one to start the applause because I think it's an immediate connection with Shakespeare's genius and Shakespeare's art, that Shakespeare himself is inviting us to take up. So I think, you know, I, I want to be the first because I'm so excited to have that invitation every time I see these plays. We have already discussed theatrical models for Prospero, and we can add to them possible real-life inspirations, such as John Dee, the Queen's conjurer, who, following the example of Faustus, burned his books of magic. Prospero, by contrast, drowns his. Then there is Rudolf II, Holy Roman Emperor, who in the year of the Tempest's first performance ceded his crown to his usurping brother. Rudolf was also interested in alchemy and the occult, and like Prospero was perceived as dedicating more time to private study than governing. Closer to home, Peter Ackroyd notes that there was a riding master of London called Prospero. But the most lasting model for the magician has been Shakespeare himself. 
Virginia Mason Vaughan writes that the connection between Prospero and Shakespeare became literally engraved in stone with the installation of Peter Shemaker's sculpture in Poet's Corner at Westminster Abbey in 1741. Where a thoughtful Shakespeare leans on a pile of books, a scroll beneath the books was initially left blank, but later the Dean of Westminster Abbey had the following words engraved. The cloud-capped towers, the gorgeous palaces, the solemn temples, the great globe itself, yea, all which it inherit, shall dissolve, and like the baseless fabric of a vision, leave not a wreck behind. As these words are not accompanied by any reference to the Tempest or Prospero, they are taken as the poet's own feelings. Thomas Campbell, writing in 1838, is often touted as the first to link Prospero and Shakespeare. But in fact, two years before, Coleridge had written in an essay that Prospero is the very Shakespeare himself, as it were, of the Tempest. But even as far back as 1667, in the alteration of Shakespeare's play that Coleridge found so vulgar, Dryden had written the following prefatory verses. As when a tree cut down, the secret root lives underground, and thence new branches shoot. So from old Shakespeare's honoured dust this day springs up and buds a new reviving play. Shakespeare, who taught by none, did first impart to Fletcher wit, to labouring Johnson art. He monarch-like gave those his subjects law, and is that nature which they paint and draw. Fletcher reached that which on his heights did grow, while Johnson crept and gathered all below. Here we have John Fletcher, author of the Tempest-like Sea Voyage, and Ben Johnson imagined as a kind of Ariel and Caliban to Shakespeare's Prospero. Prospero, as we have seen, is wise, monarch-like, but also weakening. Towards the end of the play, he talks of his retirement to Milan, where every third thought shall be my grave. Edward Dowden writes that in the later plays of Shakespeare, the sympathetic reader can discern unmistakably a certain abandonment of the common joy of the world, a certain remoteness from the usual pleasures and sadnesses of life. And at the same time, all the more, this tender bending over those who are like children, still absorbed in their individual joys and sorrows. Over the beauty of youth and the love of youth, there is shed in these plays of Shakespeare's final period a clear yet tender luminousness, not elsewhere to be perceived in his writings. In the first words of his epilogue, Prospero acknowledges, Now my charms are all o'erthrown, and what strength I have's mine own, which is most faint. He is one of us again, as mortal as the actor who plays him, and no longer protected by the airy charms of art. This sense of retirement has been present since the beginning, when Prospero lays down his mantle, saying, Lie there, my art. Prospero's grip on his art, which, as we have seen, kept both he and his daughter alive, is fading. His tyranny over Caliban belies the fear he has of what Caliban may and indeed is plotting to do. His power over Ariel, too, must be enforced with threats. He does not have the power to command them uncomplainingly or to transform them. This, as W.H. Auden argues, grieves Prospero greatly. His anger at Caliban stems from his consciousness of this failure, which he confesses to, aside and alone, although he doesn't explain it to Ferdinand and Miranda. A devil, a born devil, on whose nature nurture can never stick, on whom my pains humanely taken all, all lost, quite lost. And as with age his body uglier grows, so his mind cankers. You can hold the mirror up to a person, says Auden, but you may make him worse. Reading Prospero with Shakespeare in mind, the failure of the magician's art translates to the dramatist's recognition of his own waning powers. 
Preparing to leave his enchanted, artificial island, he finds himself on a coastline where the distinction between verse and common speech breaks down. Northrop Fry writes that the versification is also that of a late play. The Tempest is written in the direct speaking style of Shakespeare's last period, the lines full of weak endings and so welded together that every speech is a verse paragraph in itself, often very close in its rhythm to prose, especially in the speeches of Caliban. Within The Tempest's strange music, Auden says that famous passages of poetry are accidental. In The Tempest, only the wedding mask, which is very good and apposite, and possibly aerial songs are dependent on poetry. Otherwise, you could put The Tempest in a comic strip. As Auden saw it with this play, Shakespeare finally succeeds in writing myth. A creation myth of sorts, a reflection on the artistic process. Harold Bloom writes that as Ariel was confined in a hollow tree when Prospero first arrived on the island, so at the end of the Tempest, Prospero sees himself confined, imprisoned on the island. Just as Ariel needed Prospero's charms to release him from his confinement, now Prospero needs the viewer's spell to free him from his confinement. If we are to read Prospero as Shakespeare, and Shakespeare at sort of the peak and end of his, his powers... What sense should we make of the fact that Prospero is in exile and in such unfamiliar territory? Well, what I think you know, there's there's there are exiles all over Shakespeare, aren't there? Banishment is an extremely important theme for Shakespeare. Think about as you like it and Duke Senior for a, a moment or two, and and maybe with banishment comes a freedom that your home state had denied you. And and that sense of it's Amiens, isn't it, in As You Like It, whom we hear say, happy is your grace that can translate the stubbornness of fortune into so quiet and so sweet a style. And that sense of the exiles bringing to the world, their exiled world in the Forest of Arden, something extremely positive and transforming that world. I think that's what we see Prospero doing, and that's what Shakespeare's doing as an as an artist. He's he's bringing, and his his ability to create where nothing existed first of all. So he's turning his art to the world, in order for what? In order for people to engage with and to make money from, but also to somehow maybe change those people and the way they think. So it has a political project and it therefore has a spiritual project within it. Art, surely the most, the most any artist would, would hope for his or her work of art would be that it'd be somehow life enhancing by telling the truth. That's, that's art's aim. So I, I, think, I think we find that in, in The Tempest and in Prospero, don't we? That although he's exiled, he's got his books and he's got his daughter and he's got this island. And his, pro his project, remember, is, is, to, is to forgive those who wronged him. Now, he could have created a tempest and had them all shipwrecked and made them all just drown. But every single one of them is saved um, and, and brought to account. And it is fascinating to read the play as an exercise in forgiveness. Uh, do, you, do you think that's why it does have that intervention of the divine to give, to give um, 
to, to indicate a, high, a power higher than Prospero? To humble him? I think so. I think, it, you mean, as it were, a reminder of where Prospero's own power comes from. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think we, we, we glimpse that through the play, but we especially, as it were, hear it unambiguously in his epilogue. And my ending is despair, unless I be relieved by prayer, which pierces so that it assaults mercy itself and frees all faults. That word mercy, you know, I mean, we as Shakespeareans kind of always hear the quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from where? From heaven upon the place beneath. I think, I think mercy is definitely a heavenly word mm. as far as Shakespeare is concerned. That prayer assaults, he's saying, mercy itself and frees all faults. That's how deeply spiritual this play can be. And we don't have to even go looking for it very much. It's just, it's kind of simply there. And it's deeply there. And that's all we have time for today. As you may have heard throughout the episode, I am recording this as Storm Dudley rages outside, which is quite fitting for the Tempest. So I hope I've at least got some ambient roaring and thundering um, to accompany sections where I really go off on one. Um, a huge thank you to Paul Edmondson. Uh, like I said at the top of the show, tune in again tomorrow to hear an extended interview with Paul. We talk about, about his background in uh, Shakespeare research and several of his uh, books, including The Shakespeare Circle, which he edited and I, I'm a huge fan of. Remember to leave a review or subscribe if you've enjoyed the podcast. There are plenty more episodes on Shakespeare plays. Uh, there's also one on his sonnets with Paul's frequent collaborator, Stanley Wells. I'll be back soon with another episode, but in the meantime, happy reading. Thou spirit perform to the point the tempest that I bade thee.